You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Shorty, anything can happen. Where did you find your uh, little bodyguard? I didn't find him. I caught him. What? Shorty's family were killed when the Japanese bombed Shanghai. He's been living on the streets since he was four. <laughs> I caught him trying to pick my pocket. Didn't I, short stuff? <laughs> the biggest trouble with her is the noise. Welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's General Geek Show. Man, I've got to say, this Temple of Doom is a lot cleaner than I thought it was going to be. Um, so, uh, and I'm glad that I'm not here alone because I might be scared if I was. I've got my hand over my heart with John Mills. Well, <laughs> you know how we bald people are when we come into Temples of Doom. We're always going for the heart, Matt. I I was I'm just saying I just I just can never be too careful with the bald people. I you know I mean the truth is the truth, man. Let's let's face it. Let's face it. Oh Th- man! Thank you for having me back on to 602 Club. It feels like a king's age since I was here. Did this movie? Uh, of course, you're always welcome. I mean, I just it's it's an open invitation. But I I I do have to ask: Did this movie uh, make people look at you in a different light? Uh <laughs> you know what it, people were walking down the street and you're like no seriously i'm not gonna pull your heart out uh well okay see the thing is then we go into the art imitating life kind of thing and and stuff like that uh if temple of doom existed or didn't would people still wonder if i was going to do that i don't know <laughs> uh, but it's certainly i do have to credit this as yet another uh, Indiana Jones movie that uh, makes it incredibly easy for a bald person to uh, cosplay at Halloween because in the first movie we had the bald airplane mechanic who famously dies in the helicopter rotor blades true and then we true. have no shirt too so very very easy very easy especially in Florida and I can tell you that uh, Mola Ram there you go there's another one very light easy costume and uh, you can... Uh, you just need some head paint. Yeah, and also very famously dies in uh, in an alligator accident, also fitting for Florida. So there you go. <laughs> Which is very true. <laughs> you know, though, uh, you know, the last crusade going on bald people, uh, Sean Connery bald at that point. So, That's you know? true. That's very, very true. Um, wow. So that, yeah, there you go. I could actually play a good guy. Well, that's good. Yeah. Oh, and... Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which we talked about. Bald guy there, too. Oh, you're right. Oh, I Russian. Thank you very much, Indiana Jones series, for uh, giving me my choice of people to play at Halloween. Man, tell you what, there is some serious (laughs) love that uh, 
Steven Spielberg has for the bald people. That's true. That's true. And it's appreciated. Hmm. It's appreciated. Good job, Steven. Well, um, <laughs> before we actually dive into the movie, uh, don't forget you can find us everywhere. Yeah, we're on iTunes at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. You can find all the shows we're doing there. And, of course, uh, you know, hit us up with a star rating review. It's been a long time since we've had one. And if you leave us a star rating and review, uh, we'll call you out on the show. We'll thank you and we'll let everybody know what you thought. So uh, no matter what the rating and the review is. And uh, you can find us on Twitter, TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We do have our listeners-only discussion group. You can check that out over on Facebook. Um, and it's called the Babel Conference. So if, if you're on Facebook type Babel into the search field. Or if you're over on the website at Trek.fm, click discussion on any of the menu bars and you'll be able to follow that right over and we'll let you in so you can talk with everybody else here, uh, all the other fans of the network who are all talking about what we're talking about there. Uh, some great conversations going on on all of the shows. So, John, uh, Temple of Doom, so we're doing this in weird order. Way back at the beginning of the 602 Club, we talked about Raiders. Mm-hmm. And then you and I jumped all the way to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yes. And now we're back. I mean, talk about time-wine whiplash. Um, yeah. We're back at the Temple of Doom, which is actually a prequel to Raiders. Yes. Before anybody so. knew what a prequel was, a prequel <laughs> exactly. was given unto them. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, this one didn't get as much guff as the other prequels did, the famous prequels. Uh, very true, but I, you know, this is actually a point of contention with me. And uh, it, if if you've listened to me on on the podcast airwaves long enough, you hear me constantly make reference to my friend Joey, whom I've known since I was like 15 years old. And he and I have gone back and forth about it because I have, you know, whenever prequel discussions have come up, I'm like, well, you know, Temple of Doom, that's a prequel too. And he insists, and I, it's possibly a fair point. That uh, if it didn't say 1935 at the opening of the film, you wouldn't be able to tell. And I insist that you are able to tell because Indiana Jones is markedly one step backward character development wise than he was in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's very true. It's very true. Not only that, but uh, when they talk about Short Round, they mention um, happening not too long ago um, when Short Round was four, which he's probably, what, six now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Back in 1934, 32 or something like that? Anyway, so very very close to this time period, the, the Japanese bombing his, his home. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, yes, they, they definitely set this movie in a different time period. And, I, you know, I thought what was most interesting is that the reason for that is George didn't want the bad guys to be Nazis again. Mm -hmm. and he didn't want to go there. Uh, so there you go. George not wanting to repeat himself. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, do you think, though, like, when we think back at this movie, like, do you think it was a good idea to go backwards? I think the impulse to make it somebody other than the Nazis was a good one. It was a strong one. But I think it also proved to be, I, I say, regardless of whether he went forward or backward, because you see this kind of occur with King, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull as well, when they're not Nazis against, like it's so, when you think of Indiana Jones, it's so indelibly imprinted on your brain of him against the Nazis that, even though it's this many years later and we have 50% of the movies not dealing with Nazis, that's sort of the first thing that pops you. So I, I think that it it was maybe more challenging uh, than anticipated to shift it from that. But, because I think you, you know, I think attendant with that, the nature of the film is markedly different from Raiders as well. It is, in fact, much darker. It is, in fact, much harder uh to you know i i mean i can roll the clock all the way back i remember seeing this in a theater it's the the bad guys aren't as easy to understand you say nazi everyone's like yep got it totally get it and then you go and you're like oh well obscure death cult in 1930s india that's a little harder for somebody to like understand all of the angles too you know yeah i i, I think that there's a real validity to all that because this this movie, there is a huge change in it. I mean, it, it, just even the whole 
world that Indiana seems to be in. It obviously feels even, uh, it feels a lot different. You know, there isn't that sense of, I mean, World War II is, has a heavy burden on a lot of people, but being earlier in the 30s here, that burden is lifted. Um, so there is uh, a slight uh, change, I think, in just the way Idiot Jones acts, the way the rest of the world is acting. It's slowly devolving into chaos at this point, but it hasn't reached that crescendo yet. So the world that he is in is different. And of course, a starting in Shanghai also changes things as well um, with Club Obi-Wan. Um, so... Yeah. You know, I think, but the idea of, uh, like, to me, the idea of a prequel, I think, is interesting because, like you pointed out, there is a marked difference in Indiana Jones in this movie. And I think that's the thing that makes this fascinating to watch. And an interesting thing is if you go back and kind of watch it chronologically, while the films, um, it gives you the marked character development in each movie as the character slowly moves from somebody who is kind of self-absorbed to being and and out for for one thing which is number 1 to being somebody who it seems to be doing what he's doing more an attempt to actually safeguard all the things that he's looking for um here he really is i mean they even call him out at the beginning of the movie he's kind of a grave robber yeah, I uh, I think that you see some of the input because, you know, Raiders is, of course, born of the desire uh, of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Um, but also Spielberg wanted very famously to do a Bond movie and they told him no. And so there's definitely that there's more of a Bond feel to Indiana Jones in this with the way that it opens. He's in a tuxedo. He's in a nightclub. It's a really flashy sort of action spectacle, which is different than the opening sequence of Raiders, which is in the jungle, it's gritty, it's dirty, and his quest is more noble just in the beginning, where he wants to take that idol back to a museum as opposed to deliver the ashes for money uh, at, the, at the beginning of this. I, um, I really think that the only problem I have with if you were to view these chronologically is it makes perfect sense. Here in Temple of Doom, he's out for fortune and glory. He, you've got Short Round, which is you know the humanizing aspect of him. And by the end of this film, you, he's believably at a point where he's had some sort of epiphany that that's not the right reason to do things. And so that goes into Raiders, and it's, you can understand where he's at, and it does flow nicely. But then it causes a bit of a character hiccup because in the opening sequence to uh, Last Crusade, he's noble from childhood forward. So there's almost, I mean, you can, you could do all sorts of gymnastics mentally and say, oh, well, you know, people go through phases, go up, you know, you have your ups and downs. He gets a taste of fame, you know, that sort of thing. But I, it's... It's very interesting because I think that you could look at Last Crusade and that opening almost as an attempt to sort of soft reboot his character um, to sort of overlook Temple of Doom. Because I mean, this wasn't received very warmly by the critics, like overall. A lot of people came down very hard on them for a very dark film. I agree with you. I think it's interesting when you put it all into context of the chronology and the way in which the Last Crusade really does try and make Indy this kind of knight from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, here he is definitely, he's not even the dark knight. He's yeah. just the dick knight, right? <laughs> like, he, <laughs> he really is just out for himself, right? You're going to have to trademark and copyright that one real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Trademarked Matthew Rushing. There you go. 2018. <laughs> um, but no, he, I mean, because he is, he, he and Short Round even talk about the idea that they're kind of out for fortune and glory. And this this does make a really interesting thing. And I like what you pointed out, how, you know, in the first movie, he comes off as the action-adventure serial hero. This movie, he comes off at the beginning more as the James Bond type of hero, but a James Bond who doesn't have king or country that right. he's fighting for, or queen or country. 
um, you know, you just get the guy who is in it for him. And, and I think it's one of those things that it does make it fascinating to watch this character, especially throughout this film, move through that. And, it, and I really enjoy, I mean, you know, spoilers, Temple of Doom is not my favorite Indiana Jones movie. I, I don't think it's anybody's. I don't think that's a controversial I know, I statement don't, at all. I actually don't know any. In fact, if it is your favorite, either tweet us at TrekFM with the hashtag The602Club or just hit us up on, on Facebook on the Babel Conference and let us know because I would really love to know somebody who this is their favorite Indiana Jones movie. But until somebody proves us wrong, I don't think that this is anybody's favorite. But... I do think that this character development for Indiana Jones makes it a worthwhile endeavor, and it makes it an interesting watch even now when I go back because of the way in which we get to see... And I think, it, again, it's just it's smart. It's Stephen and George definitely realizing, okay, this character is a few years earlier. We need to make this interesting by giving him an arc to show how he gets there. And it also shows that definitely George is already thinking in the prequel terms, right? Mm -hmm. How do characters get to where I've already written um, and making sure that that's a worthwhile journey to go through. So, and, and still, again, regardless of how I feel about the movie overall, the journey I feel like Indiana Jones goes on is definitely worth watching to me. Yeah, I, I also think that it, what's really interesting about this is that this has despite it's it's almost and the thing is I'm not drawing a one to one here but like whenever I've defended aspects of Star Trek 5 to people because you know that that's been my lifelong quest is to redeem that movie in the public's eyes I guess but th there are like whatever problems there are about Temple of Doom and and all of that there are still some beautiful character moments and there is some terrific acting on the part of Harrison Ford in this film. I mean, it's when he goes through the whole thing after he's had the blood and he's going through that transformation, like that's a creepy, freaky scene, and it's him. He makes that work. And when he has his turn and short round, you know, wins him back, like that's such a that's such a beautiful moment. I mean, that for the flaws that there are in this there are still moments that make me cry every time I watch the film because they're so heartfelt and so beautifully performed. And it's really, it's really something. And I think it's also, this film was one of the earliest arguments in favor of widescreen or letterboxing is I think that this is one of those films that very much suffers uh, in pan and scan. Um, more than the other ones. Just the way that certain scenes are staged and the scope of some of the shots was really, really hurt by the home video market. When that was the only, when that was the only way you could re-experience it was, you know, cropped for four by three. Hmm. It yeah. really hurt it. Yeah, I could see that in some of those wide jungle shots than even in some of the... Um, mine shots, of course, the shots inside mm -hmm. the temple there of doom <laughs> yeah. you know um just yeah the the way that spielberg uses the camera mm -hmm. in those places to to take full effect of the sets that they've created is is really and even the minecart chase as well which i, I think all of those places you definitely are going to get hurt when you cut out a you know what a good third of the screen yeah it, and it you know it's funny because uh with the minecart chase my brain instantly, and I'm sorry if I'm, you know, detouring here, but like every time I've rewatched Temple of Doom, uh, especially, you know, in, in the last couple of years or whatever, uh, and, and for this, the minecart chase, all I can think of during it is this would be CG. This is CG nowadays. And <laughs> yeah. I go back and forth because I know that this was an incredible achievement in many regards with the model work that they did and the intercutting of live action and model mm -hmm. shots is really well done but there are certain things where i could definitely see putting myself in george lucas's brain you know oh no i wish i had that back 
I like because you, you can tell in, in some of the shots that they're just like little puppets, you know, <laughs> yep, <laughs> like and yep. you lose the sense of scale and everything for that that mm-hmm. moment just enough to pull you out of it. And it's uh, so I could see that being that that type of seed in his brain. that's like hey, we, we got to find better ways to do this, guys. We got we got to work this well, out. Yeah. No, and I think you know, talking about the minecart scene, no reason not to talk about it, um, because it is one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah, uh, I, I really, I, I was watching carefully with the special effects, and they do a very good job with the editing, so mm-hmm. that those moments are as small as possible. Yep. So that the moments when they switch perspectives, you can hardly tell. Like they really have finessed it as much as possible to make this work for the technology they have, and it, it is still very impressive mm-hmm. for the time period. Um, the only thing I realized that doesn't make any sense in the scene is that when he empties the big thing of water, mm-hmm. it would never reach them. They went over a lava pit that was like really, really deep. And mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. wide, and all of that water would just immediately evaporate. <laughs> I would, I would actually uh, <laughs> see. The thing is, I can go one of two ways here because one way I can go is to be like, well, the velocity of the water is what carried it over, and uh, so you know, if you get it just the right speed, <laughs> you know. But he timed it just right. Right, exactly. It was like the Goldilocks water, and there was there was a, a wind current, and it carried it uh, an updraft. But the thing is, that's all inspired, I know, in my brain, because uh, it, have you ever seen the film Hollywood Shuffle by Robert Townsend? Uh, there is a, you can find it on YouTube. There's a great scene from it. It's like, basically like a clip movie, like Kentucky Fried Movie or Amazon Women on the Moon. But it's all sorts of brilliant. And one of the things they have <laughs> is sneaking in the movies, which is making fun of uh, Siskel and Ebert, but it's these two guys who sneak into the movies, and one of the ones they watch specifically makes fun of the ending of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and they get into an <laughs> argument about whether they could survive the jump off the side of the mountain, and it's mm, yeah. it's the best moment yeah. in the whole skit. It really is. Yeah, uh, but uh, the, besides that, I mean, it doesn't even matter. I mean, the right. minecart. Is fantastic. In fact, the worst part of the minecart is when the water comes through the wall, mm-hmm. and you can see "quote unquote" Indiana Jones climbing up the side of the wall, and you can totally tell he's been rotoscoped onto yeah. that wall. It's awful. You know, it's a challenge <laughs> that they still find uh, in the modern age, even with our great, uh, great effects, and that there's a very. Uh, there, let's just say there are plenty of films, uh, one in particular I'm thinking of, where two people walk out of a cave on a cliffside, and the first time I saw it, I said, huh, really? They couldn't do that better? Mm. Black Panther! <laughs> um, um. Yeah, that was... that was. <laughs> I was thinking of another one, but yeah, that one counts too. Oh, yeah, yeah it would count mm. too. Um, so, yeah, I guess... It, but that's the thing, is is, and I love about this, this film, and, and just those films in general, is that you know, effects are never going to be perfect in a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 20 years from now, somebody's going to watch Jurassic World and be like, those effects suck. Yeah. You know, but th- that's just the way it is because technology and, and filmmaking is always moving forward. It's more about the the enjoyment of the genius at the time. It's mm-hmm. why I don't have a problem with the prequels, the Star Wars prequels and their use of CGI why I don't have a problem with the use of, of technology here and it's why I don't have a problem with the use of technology now in films the only thing that bothers me in films these days is when I know they can do better and they just didn't yeah so well I that's mean, a different story for me it's all about consistency like you can tell when somebody's brought their a game to the whole the whole deal and when the a game wasn't you know when it, when it was thrown in uh, quickly and that is not to take anything away from the effects people because, of course, they work on deadlines and schedules. And I'm very familiar with working with uh, projects that uh, are launched before they're ready because somebody decided that they, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it also underlines the fact that the effects, and this is Lucas's own philosophy, and we know it's Spielberg's as well, that 
the effects are secondary. No matter how good or how bad they are, they're secondary. You'll forgive bad effects if you like the movie, and you'll just and and great effects can't save a film. And um, so, like, it definitely all comes back to, you know, for me, the 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 moments that you get in here. I love the way that they do the bugs, um, the bug cave, uh, but emotionally. Emotionally, I will always hang on to the moment where Short Round has to burn Indy and it, you know, it snaps him out of it. And, you know, and, and they have the fight scene and everything. And I love that fight scene. And then it, and then when Short Round and Indy, like, I, I, you know, like it's those moments are the ones that you remember. You don't really remember which shot didn't didn't line up quite right you know yeah no i agree with you and and that's one of the things i thought was really interesting for me and this rewatch i will be honest and say that i've never personally been much of a fan of short round but for some reason this rewatch he was good I, like i i love I, him i came around to the character and and for the most part i think um it's it's interesting to see this version of Indiana Jones with a kid, mm-hmm. you know, because in Raiders, I can't see him that way. But there's something about, and one of the things I love that it does for Indy is that it makes him more human. Otherwise, he would just be a complete jerk. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. Story wise, definitely serves uh, that role, but I think short round also. Um, in a a very large sense, he winds up as Robin to Indy's Batman. It's the same yeah, reason Robin yeah. exists, is he's a counterbalance to the darkness. Indy's in a dark spot here. You need that counterbalance that reminds you that deep down he's a good guy. Yeah. Well, that and somebody to correct other people when they don't call you Dr. Jones. So You know, I... I love that so much. You call him Dr. Jones. <laughs> you I, call him Dr. Jones, doll. Yeah, I, uh, oh. I, no time for love, Dr. Jones. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, that, I, <laughs> how many people use that line freely to, uh, <laughs> to hurry their friends up when they're trying to leave at the end of the night, uh, out drinking or something? Just me? Just me? Okay. No, um, it's, uh, well, and, and the thing that is, is really interesting about, um, the character is the way in which there are things that he can see as a character that Indiana can't. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, again, it, it makes him a wor- worthwhile character, somebody that Indy has opportunity to learn from. Um, you know, I mean, and, and I think I would say the other thing too, that, that makes him interesting is that they don't negate the fact that he is a child. Right. So that there are parts of it that may be slightly annoying or whatever that he does, but he is a kid. Now, see, I want to ask you this. What do you find that he does that's annoying? Because I don't find Short Round annoying, like, at all. No, I just, so, I just mean, like, I, I meant in the sense of, like, for the character of Indiana. Like, there are uh, moments okay. when, when in Short Round is getting on his nerves, you know, like, when they're in um, the, uh, they've just gotten out of, ugh, the insect cave and they're in the other one and he's like go stand over there because Indy's trying to figure it out and of course he goes and stands over leans against the wall he's like you told me to stand here you know like that moment where Indy you know he's being pestered and he's trying to figure something out and and that's what I mean for the annoying factor it's it's for the character more so than I think the audience well I mean you can't you cannot uh, take away the you know the performance. It's uh, Jonathan K. Kwan, um, I think is the actor's name. Um, his his performance is I I think terrific, and he has arguably the best, if, definitely one of, but arguably the best reaction shot in the entire film. When uh, when they're at the dinner table with the you know the the snake surprise and the the eyeball stew and everything like that, when the gum drops out of his mouth. Is one of one of the best reaction shots in the entire film, because uh, you know, I mean, the, he really sold it. And it's what's really interesting is 
he also serves a purpose in terms of, you know, I, I, I mean, just looking at it from a story perspective, he's your in to the child minds, uh, you know, where they have all the kids chained up, uh, digging for the missing stones and everything. Um, and I think that the scene that he has as well, where he's talking to, you know, the, the kid in the cage who says, you know, let me die, you know, and it's like, it's, it's such a, it's such an interesting perspective because I think that short round proves uh, again that Spielberg and Lucas regard children as wiser and more mature than your typical movie does. Um, I think that they they have a a view of children that's that's different than. You know, just a lot of movies that I've seen. Usually kids are sort of helpless one-liner machines. And instead, Short Round is, he's with it. He's still a kid, like you said, but he's not dumb. You know, like he's used, he's he's got an intelligence and they don't sell kids short, I guess I'm trying to say. Right. What, What I love about it is they don't dumb him down. But they also don't make him too smart to for his own good in the sense that like he comes off as a adult in a kid's body, which happens most of the time these days in films where mm-hmm. they have the smart ass kid who's smarter than all the adults, and it's it, it's just not done well. But here it feels authentic, like yeah. this is an actual child who who does happen to be somebody who's been living on their own since they were four. And so that it, he has an intelligence that's way beyond somebody of, of his years. So it actually makes sense for the character to be like he is. Um, and yeah, he's not, I don't know, there, there, there isn't that obnoxious one-linerness to him, which drives me crazy um, when kids in films are just, that's all they're there for. Yeah. Um, and, and, and too, like... I don't have kids, but I know you do. And it's like, if my kid was watching this movie, I wouldn't have a problem with them emulating a lot of what Short Round does in the movie, right? I'd, I'd be proud he, of him. He, <laughs> yeah, because he's a, they're, that's a kid you could, whereas you have those other movies where those kids are just complete little a-holes, you know, and you're like, I don't want my kid acting like that. In fact, I wish I'd never watched my kids watch this movie kind of thing. You know, like that's yeah. that's the difference in, in the way this character is written as a child and the way a lot of other movies use children. You know, what's really interesting is I have shown this to my kids. I, this is the one I held on to. This is like Revenge of the Sith where I was like, I, you got to get to a certain... I, I got to, you know, I, I got to know you're going to be able to, you know, sort of like hang on to this and not, uh, you know go too far with it and and get freaked out and stuff. And what's so fascinating. And I think back to when I was a kid and I saw this, that the heart scene, you know, the, the the famous mole Rom taking the heart out scene. That was fascinating. Yeah. it It was thrilling and it was terrifying, but it was also like, Whoa, did you just see what happened? That's crazy. As opposed to, and my kids had the same reaction, and they also had the same reaction to the bugs, which is, if you ask them what part freaked them out the most, it was the bug tunnel. The bug tunnel stays with you, man. Like, you you know. It does. That scene is so crazy scary. But, But, like, what I'm going for here is that, like, I think that this film is accessible to kids. Like I, I always say when uh, when the misses and I are discussing about whether they're ready to you know see certain things or read certain books or anything, I always say, you know, Beowulf used to be a nighttime story for kids. You know, mm-hmm. like they can handle what you give them. Like you know, obviously there are limits and everything, but don't sell a kid short. They're able to they're able to work with it, you know? Even Temple of Doom. Yes. Well, and I think I think you know, there there's a way in which I feel like it's almost a, this is just off topic, but I feel like we've just shielded our kids from the wrong things, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and uh, you know, you're a parent, and I think you totally that I, I feel like that's what you're saying. It's like yes, we're, 
we're worried about the wrong things here. So this, and and two, I think it, it just again is as any good parent, you're watching it with your kids, and then you talk about it afterwards. You know, so it gives you good topics of conversation to be able to have. Whether it's oh that bug room was the worst thing I've ever seen. I never want to go there. I never want to see that again. To oh that was weird. They they pulled that guy's heart out. You know, so or even a moment that I think is very telling. You know, because we talk about Indy being in a dark place and everything, but. You know, he gets in that conveyor belt fight and the guy's trying to kill him. And it's sort of a it's sort of a trope with heroic movies and everything like that. But when you really think about it, when you really think about it, he tries to save the guy, the guy that was just trying to kill him. He's trying. He tries to save him like, you know, there's and that's the underpinning thing is Indiana Jones He's in plenty of fights and gunfights and and all of those sorts of things, but he doesn't want to harm anybody. That he can, he does, but he's not looking to cause damage or mayhem or death. And so, like that scene always has stuck with me. That Indy would, you know, like I I think even that is uh, an impulse nowadays in films where it's the the righteous death sort of thing. Or we always get like the hero saves the bad guy, but then the bad guy comes back and tries to kill him in this. It's just India's trying to be a decent human being. It's like, okay, we were fighting, but like, I don't want that to happen to you. You know, I just want to knock you out, you know, that sort of thing. No, I, I, I think that what it does is, I don't know that it just, maybe it's just, there's a different sensibility then, mm. than today. And, and I mean, part of it, I think, you know, this is this is Stephen and George back in their prime, and and you know they were very much about when making these kind of movies. I think a little bit like Star Wars, you want them to be something that that people watch and get something a little bit more out of than just fun, right? Um, and especially the kids. Yeah. Uh. So. Um. Yeah. It's a, uh, on a completely different subject. Um. Than that, uh, what did you think about Willie as our lead female character? But I really like Short Round. That's the important thing, is I've always <laughs> been a fan of Short Round. Uh, you know, look, Willie is, I, I'm not as bothered by Willie as I was before, because she's a character who, this is, you know, she's a nightclub singer who gets thrust into adventure. And there, the scene where he's trying to seduce her and it's not working, and they're in the room. Very clever scene, very charming. However, um, she's such a gigantic step back. Like, when you come on the scene with Marion, I almost think that this film would have been better served by not having a female love interest at all. Maybe if you're rewriting it, have Short Round be a little girl that's on the adventure with them or something. Well, they did. They had that thought process. Yeah. And, but so. but it's... Willie is just such a letdown after Marion. Like, you, you'd almost expect in the first Indiana Jones movie, you'd be like, oh, damsel in distress, and then they sort of, like, shake it off. And they're like, yeah, that was a little indulgent. This feels like they stepped backwards and... While I don't, while I don't drag Willie anymore, um, and I like the character works overall. I just don't, I just don't care for it. And I think it's, I think it's honestly because a helpless person has no place in an in an Indiana Jones movie. You know, like it just doesn't feel right that a help a quote unquote helpless person is there. You know, like it just doesn't. It just doesn't ring true. Marion can take care of herself. Elsa can take care of herself. Um, and and it's, you know, does that make sense? No, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, they they wanted somebody who was the polar opposite of Marion. And they definitely got that. Yes. But not in a good way. You know, the the way that this character comes off and just the, the character in general for the film is... She is hard to take, you know, like she is just obnoxious in every level in almost every single scene. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of frustrating because it does take away from the movie 
um, with her being like that. And so, you know, I mean, it is what it is, but what it is is not very good. <laughs> yes. Um, and that, and that's, that's the frustrating thing. And, and, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I do almost feel as though if you had had a different love interest or had no love interest, this movie would be automatically maybe half a star better just because Willie's not in it. Yes. Yeah. I Which is kind of sad to say. <laughs> you know, look, man, I mean, it's, it's not, it's honestly, it's not Kate Capshaw's fault. She did what she was asked to do in the film and she plays care. I mean, she obviously played Willie believable enough that she annoys the living bejeebers out of me, you know, like, so success on that front, but that's well, and apparently she's been annoying Steven ever since, since they're married. So, yeah, yeah it's kind of <laughs> interesting, isn't it? But Hey, you know, yep. they found happiness. Yep. We, yep. Found happiness on the, the movie set. There so, um, yeah, she just, she's not great, but whatever. Um, one of the, okay, we've kind of talked around the idea of this movie, you know, being darker and something that I thought was interesting, you know, is one of the, the captured kids says to Indy in short round that, you know, when you drink the blood, uh, it's like you're in a living nightmare that you can't wake up from. And I thought that that was kind of fascinating because obviously, you know, when we look at the history of the production of this movie and writing the movie, Lucas is going through a very difficult divorce. Steven is going through a breakup with a girlfriend. Neither of their lives are going very well at that point, and they dive into the Temple of Doom. Mm. <laughs> so uh, the idea, though, I, and I thought that was kind of actually poignant, though, the idea of thinking about the way in which we all go through things in our life that feel like a living nightmare we just want to wake up from, and honestly, the only way to wake up from that is usually just time passing, uh, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, I, just, yeah, I thought but... that it was really resonant because it does make the movie have a different spin when you start to think about it in those terms, I think. Uh, I, I agree. But I would also add that something fascinating in this, this, um, this tendency, this urge, this whatever you want to call it, the subconscious underpinning in Lucas's work shows up here very strongly of the road to redemption, salvation, love, all of that stuff is through the kid. And again, Indy with short round, just like, you know, Luke being adopted by the Lars and Leia being adopted by the Organas, you have this sense of, Family is choice and short round is essentially an adopted kid, but it's, you know, Indy finds his way out of the dark place because of the love of a child for him. And it's, um, you know, it's a very common thread and, you know, you could even, um, you know, you move it forward. It even continues in last crusade, you know, but Indy is the kid who, you know, sees his dad through and, and stuff like that. You know, th there's... well, and then the kingdom of the crystal skull—it's mm -hmm. the father and the son again. Right. But now Indy's the father, right? And there's very much a—you know—that theme is very present here. And honestly, I mean, because you think Star Wars, Empire, Raiders—um, you know, this is, I think, the first manifestation of it. The first very clear manifestation of sort of that subconscious urge about the role kids play in an adult's life. Or can play in an adult. Yeah. Life. Well, and then, and it's so interesting too because in Raiders, Indy has a very different relationship with you know Marion mm -hmm. as being somebody who's younger and he's older, and they have you know that whole relationship aspect that they have. So yeah, it's it's that one's a lot more complicated. Yes. Um, but well, it does. Yeah, that you're <laughs> right. It really yeah. does kind of run through all of these films, and that's fascinating to me. Um. But and and I like that what you're saying because you know when we, the idea that for so many of these movies, but even here, that the salvation for Indiana Jones and for all of those kids, uh, and even the prince who was you know the Maharaja who is under the you know um, the spell as well, like it all comes from 
this relationship of love between Indiana and Short Round. And it's that relationship, I think, that informs his decision to make sure that he saves all those kids, too. Oh, for like, that's sure. the other importance of Short Round. So, like, I, yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Uh, and that scene, you know, when they when they start that little rebellion with the kids, that's such a powerful moment. I, I mean, it really is. And the thing is, I, I keep coming back to that because for all of the all of the misses that happen in this film, there are such big hits. And I think it, I, I mean, you know, the kids, they start to the revolt. But also that final scene where the, that first mother sees the kids coming and, you know, the, that tracking camera shot as she's running across the village and all the kids come across the hill. You know, like, that's that's so beautiful, man. Like, in, in a very large sense, this, I think, this film is a great example of how if you stick the landing, the audience can forgive a lot of sins before it. You know, it, like, if you get that ending right then yes, you can acknowledge that Willie's a problem and it's not great and the character could have been written better, but that ending, okay, you know? Um, I, I just think it's really, really cool. What did, uh, so the the yeah, the story being darker um, in the end, how, how does, I mean, the thematic element we like, but how does this movie kind of being a much darker Indiana Jones, how does that end up working out for you in the end? That's fine. I don't, I don't mind dark. I think that of all four of them, it's the most, uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I guess musically you could say it's the most atonal, you know, like the, there's the Indiana Jones symphony. And this is the one, this is that weird note that you hear when you, when you go to the orchestra and you're like, what did they, is that just flat or did they mean to hit that note? You know, like that's how it comes across to me. How's it come across to you? No, I think that's a really good way to put it because uh, to me, it's the least of the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, but it's not necessarily because it's dark. It's because of a lot of other things that kind of go along with that. And then again, I think, you know, some characterizations that we get that just don't quite work. But, the darkness and the darkness of the storyline I don't necessarily have a problem with because, you know, when we're thinking about, like, action-adventure serials and what you're going to search for and all these kind of things, you know, some of the things that, you know, as an archaeologist you might get yourself into um, like this, and don't mean like a real archaeologist, but just like these kind of action-adventure type of stories, um, yeah, there are going to be some darker elements you might fall into, and this is definitely one of them. Basically, it's a death cult. So, um, you know, that should be darker and sinister and scary because that's not something you necessarily want to make light of, right? So I yeah. actually appreciate that it handles that with the care that it should, and it doesn't, you know... It doesn't It doesn't make it appealing. <laughs> yeah, the, the one thing I'll, I'll say... Uh, about because uh, now it pops back in my head is because you know I just heaped praise on the ending. I think also there is that one moment, that one Deus Ex moment in the ending, where it's obvious they've sort of gotten stuck, and they were saying, you know, what happens now? Uh, the British guy with all the soldiers shows up, sold. You know, like it's that. That's a little thing, um, but. You know, I I just I think it's a shame that it it doesn't gel quite as well as the rest of them, because I do think Mola Ram is a great villain. Um, I think he he's like that fascinating sort of, you know, uh, uh, funhouse villain that's like, you know, he's he's all he's all menace. There's no sort of like human aspect to him. Um, I wonder though if that might have something to do as well with people's seeming rejection of Temple of Doom is you don't just have Willie striking a note that doesn't line up with with Marion, but the villain in Raiders, Belloc, is fascinating 
has a wonderful discussion with Indiana Jones. You know, I'm just a shadowy reflection of you. And then again, in this, you just have, like I said, the, the funhouse villain, which is fun, but there's not a whole lot of dimension to him. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not like anybody's going to fall in love with Mullah Ram as a villain. I mean, he's just a religious zealot. It's right. insane, you know, and, and that doesn't leave a lot of room for that love to hate kind of relationship or anything like that, yeah. you know. Um, I, I think that whole thing with it, that, that when talking about the darkness and the villain and everything, it, it, they're just, like you said, it, it just doesn't quite... All the pieces, it's like you put together a Lego set just by the picture and you're trying to make it all work, but it just doesn't quite look right, you know? It, right. It, it's almost as if, you know, there were just some instructions missing to certain parts of this. And it, it, I mean, it makes sense, again, just for what we talked about of them coming into this movie and both being in places that are much darker and, you know, Lawrence Kasdan, he didn't want to rewrite the script. He didn't want to touch this one. He didn't like it, um, you know. So uh, it doesn't have uh, what he might bring to it then, um, as he did with Raiders. So, you know, it, I just... But it, it's not a train wreck. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that's the thing. You know, it, it's definitely not. Um, what did you think of... Uh, we talked about earlier the minecart... Uh, what did you think about the rest of the action in the movie? I uh, it's good, you know. It, uh, I think that um, I you know the the bridge scene. I mean, that, that's probably even though this is the most um beaten up. Well, arguably not, I guess. But even though this is one of the the Indiana Jones movies that people don't warm up to, that shot of him on the bridge with the machete. Yeah, that's like the iconic Indiana Jones shot. You know, like yes, I know there are more. There are other iconic ones, but you see that one in circulation more mm-hmm. than anything. Um, and I would say that uh, in terms of the action, you know, I struggle to think because you have the you have the big battle at the end, and you have um, the fight to free Willie. Oh, the fight to free free Willie. That's where they got the idea. Free Willie. There you go. <laughs> um. <laughs> So I, you know, I don't know. I mean, the fight scenes are okay. You know, they're good. I mean, it opens up with a humdinger, I think, um, that I don't think they quite get back to until the ending, um, because that nightclub fight is so much fun. You know, with the band playing and the yeah. balloons yeah. falling and hiding behind the rolling gong and the machine gun and all of that stuff. Like, I think that Indiana Jones, the, like they they said when they were making Raiders that the whole idea is to make it feel like a you know a serial. It's a sequence of events. It keeps building and building and building and building. And I think that maybe that's one of the the things with Temple of Doom is that it starts so incredibly strong, and then it sort of like loses some steam, and then sort of like percolates for a little bit until it gets to the end. No, I think you're right because I love that beginning, and I was thinking to myself as I was watching it, this is such classic Spielberg. Yeah. How just everything keeps happening and like more things keep happening like oh no there's ice on the floor now and then there's then there's balloons dropping and then there's you know guys coming from nowhere and and a gong we'll use that you know like it it just keeps ramping itself up and it could feel ludicrous but the way it's staged and the way it's done it just it feels like chaotic fun. So I just think it's really well done. I will say after re-watching this, I think that there is a le- I think it's least likely that they would survive the boat falling out of the sky from that di- that <laughs> height than Indiana Jones in the refrigerator. I really think that there's a better chance they would have died because there's no way they don't hit the ground inside that boat and just like break everything. Now, see, the thing is, what you got to figure out is the updrafts. And the wind currents coming across with the inflation rate of the boat coincides with the mass hitting terminal velocity at just the right yeah. time. Please. No, no We, we no. twist ourselves into mental gymnastics like that for Marvel movies. Why not Indiana Jones? Oh, man. But no, I, I think, 
in the end, um, the, this movie has a lot of great action sequences. I do think you're right, though. There is quite a bit in the middle after the boat falls out of the sky where it just it slows down a lot. And it doesn't necessarily get interesting until, like, in the sense of action-wise, until they start saving the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's a long time. Yeah. So, um, what did you think? Okay, so obviously, Indiana Jones, it's classic John Williams. What did you think of his score here coming back to the Temple of Doom? Uh, I think this is still prime Williams territory. He is still untouchable at this stage. I mean, you can you can maybe, you know, t- take a look at later works and find some criticism and some borrowing amongst himself and everything like that. But I do think Temple of Doom is still, uh, you know, you're still in that John Williams phase where you're getting, you know, you're getting E.T., you're getting Empire Strikes Back, you're getting uh, Return of the Jedi and Star Wars and Superman. And, like, he just, this is in that, that best soundtracks territory for him. And I think that there's also, I love the track of the temple of doom itself, you know, and the chanting and all of that stuff. It's so, it's so apparent that Williams knows how, when he really wants to get into the psychology of a scene and give you music that really is a character in and of itself. Yeah. It's so like that beginning where it opens up and it's anything goes, you (laughs) know, like it's just this ridiculous number um, to go from that to something like short rounds theme to that just dark, kind of creepy demonic temple of doom to the Indiana Jones theme coming back. Uh, Honestly, as Indiana Jones soundtracks go, just them in general, this is one of the best. It's really good. It's a great listen. Um, I've been listening to it a lot recently, not just because I was going to do this show, but just because I've been enjoying listening to this soundtrack. And I think you're absolutely right. This is kind of peak Williams at the top of his game, who's taking each movie and really finding what inspires him and creating themes around that. And I think, you know... Honestly, you could tell when a movie inspires Williams and when it doesn't. Yes, <laughs> and you this can. Is, and, and, and this is a movie that I think, for all its kind of creepiness and weirdness and darkness and difference from Raiders, he was able to find his in musically with the different characters, like um, Short Round, like the Temple of Doom itself. Um, and weaving in the Indiana Jones theme that he had created, the Raiders March into that all. Um, it's it's masterful. So, yeah, I absolutely adore the soundtrack. And um, in the end, where do you come down with the Temple of Doom? Like, if you're looking at Letterboxd, you're, you've got your uh, logging of the film. You just watched Temple of Doom. What are you going to rate this? You know, it's tough because I would say the Temple of Doom fluctuates for me um, from rewatch to rewatch. Uh, I can tell you uh, that right now, Temple of Doom I have at four stars on Letterboxd. But, 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 I qualify that with the fact that my middle child really responded well to it and it was very favorable circumstances watching it. I haven't gone back and re-rated it, um, you know, in prepping for this show. But I would say, if I'm, if I'm honest, I want to give it three and a half. I, if I were to really hammer, if if I'm in a bad mood, it's a three. If I'm in a decent mood, it's a three and a half. Uh, I think it's, no, and, and I do, I do think it's sitting at four right now, just because that. You know, when my kids respond well to a film, it predisposes me to respond better to it. Yeah, that makes, I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, I, I, I feel like, I mean, I don't have kids, but I feel like that when I'm with a group of people and we're really enjoying a movie, even if I could pick things out of it, 
it, it, that experience it heightens the movie, right? It it makes it a better experience, mm-hmm. um, and I think better of the movie because of that. So I I can totally understand why you would feel that way. Um, I would say for me, uh, this rewatch, you know, um, when I looked back at Letterbox, it was at two and a half stars, but this rewatch and my enjoyment of Short Round makes it a three-star film. Hey, there you go. It has earned an extra half a star, and it has moved up from being an average movie to a good movie. So I think that's pretty good. You know, I I don't I, I I agree with you. I don't think that there's a lot of room for Temple of Doom to grow then from that. Yeah. Um, but I I do think that there are some things in here that I really enjoy, and it makes it enjoyable to rewatch. You know, and and the other things that I don't like, eh, okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, but this is a movie that where I feel like there are, there are enough things that I kind of enjoy. That I can actually let those other things go, and I can't do that with every movie, but this one I've been able to find a way to do that. Yeah, I, I mean that—that's the thing—is like while we're having this discussion alone, like I, you know, like I said, I, I go back and forth between three and three and a half. I—I I, I don't know. I think I might wind up on three, just because it's like I like it's really tough. I think sometimes to approach Temple of Doom and not have in the back of my mind. I know what they were going through and I probably would have found some way to work that out myself, but it's, you know, it's tough. It's tough. I'll leave it at three and a half for right now. No, I love it though. I mean, I, I totally understand what you're, why you're saying that too, you know, and, um, you know, I just, it, it's just trying to be a person who is as consistent as possible, you know, there are just enough things here where I feel like that three is definitely as high as I could go with this one. Sure. Um, and I, I would say uh, if I had a badness scale, it would definitely it would go back to down being two and a half. You know, so it, I'm sure for me it'll kind of fluctuate between those two in the end. So, but um, yeah, this has been I, I've I've been loving rewatching Indiana Jones and talking about him with you, and and now I'm excited. Maybe sometime later this year we'll do uh, Last Crusade for everybody uh, and kind of wrap it up before you know Indiana Jones and the Geriatric Temple come out. So um, <laughs> Indiana Jones yeah. and the Social Security Department. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Hot Tub of Destiny. <laughs> yes, Indiana Jones and physical therapy. <laughs> oh gosh but hey uh thank you so much everybody for checking us out and listening to the episode want to thank our associate producers here through patreon ken trip and davis grayson um they have been with the show for a really long time and i really appreciate all of their support of the show and the network this is a massive enterprise here at trek fm and there's really no way that we can produce all of these shows for you each and every week by ourselves it just costs too much it's too big uh, go to patreon.com trekfm and that's where you can become part of the team you can help us out and make sure all the content keeps coming to you each and every week uh, we have many different perks we love uh, giving back to you as much as we can and and in the end and i say this in all sincerity it is so true every little bit helps so go again over to patreon.com trekfm and see how you can help us here at Trek FM. So, John, uh, if anybody wants to catch up with you and maybe talk a little bit more about your experience uh, watching Temple of Doom with your kids, where can people find you? Well, gosh, you can find me as Kessel Junkie on Twitter or any social network that you would prefer. You can also find me out there in the ether co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party co-hosting Great Shot Kid with Mike Schindler, whom everybody may remember from such hits as Commentary Trek Stars and Stage 9 here on Trek FM. And you can find me co-hosting over there on the Nerd Party, Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with you, Matt. We do do that one together. Huh. We do. It's so much fun. Yes, it is. Um, but you can find me on Twitter, Matt MattRushing02, um, on Instagram under the same name. 
I'm here on the network doing uh, The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So check that out. Uh, we're getting more regular with our podcast. We've got our Metamucil now. Uh, <laughs> you could find us over <laughs> You can find me over on The Nerd Party as well, not only doing aggressive negotiations, but I'm doing Outpost, a uh, Harry Potter podcast with Drea Kaufman. Uh, we walk through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. We're in the Goblet of Fire right now. It is a blast, so just check that out. And then last but not least, um, you could check me out over on Cine Stories with my good friend Courtney as we talk about films uh, through the lens of faith. Our recent episode was just about Infinity War, so check that out. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Here.